A study conducted by researchers at Iowa State University found that salad consumption amongst kids increased as much as 90% when a digital display was shown of a rotating image of salad. What they found was that rotating images actually increased salad consumption. Kids were far more likely to add items from the salad bar like lettuce, cucumbers and tomatoes when they saw that food visually being displayed in a digital way. Uh, boys were, in fact, uh, responsive to the digital menu boards uh, more than girls and were 50 to 70% more likely to serve themselves salad. The researchers believe that this is an indication just how powerful an image is before us. An image can help a boy eat salad. The visual is something that is incredibly dominant in our lives and in our minds. What we see really dictates how we live, the decisions that we make. We might hear things, but to see something, that's, well, that's more important. And that's what we're going to see today. The Israelites are in this situation where what they can see before them is, is very obvious and it's very powerful. But what they're going to be reminded of is what they can't see. And the God who is at work even beyond their understanding. You see, it's possible that we are given, that we are able to see everything. But it is also possible that we don't see how God is at work. Think about the Israelites. There they are at the beginning of the book of Exodus. They're there in Egypt. And the last couple of weeks, we saw that after the 10th plague, Pharaoh says in, verse, in chapter 12, Up, go, out my people. And they left. Well, they began to leave. And they started on their journey. And in fact, what they could see was, well, they had the bones of Joseph, which were told in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, that they took with them the bones. Back in Genesis chapter 50, we read that Joseph said to his brothers when he was about to die, you shall carry my bones up from here. And so for 400 years, they kept the remains of Joseph in some kind of box. And now, as they were setting out on this exodus, they had these bones with them, as if to say, God, even though it's 400 years, Later, you've kept your promise. So they could see these bones in front of them, this promise of God being at work in the past. And, of course, you may remember that they could see this pillar. They could see this cloud by day and the fire by night. We're reminded of in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, it says... By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light 
so that they could travel by day or night. Now, it wasn't two different clouds, one you know, being whisked away, another one blowing in at night, but it's the one cloud that shone with fire at night. And we see, in fact, throughout the Old Testament, uh, God making himself known to his people, God appearing. God often appears in the Old Testament in, in cloud or fire. Uh, later on, we see that the glory cloud, the Shekinah, will rest upon the tabernacle as the weight and the presence of God is there. And so in much the same way, we have this, this cloud of fire, this cloud and fire, smoke and flame, as the Lord leads his people out of Egypt. And wouldn't you just love that for life? Wouldn't you like a divine cloud that could lead you wherever you thought you should go. You don't have to mess around with Google Maps or Siri. You just follow the cloud. So what could the people of Israel see? Well, what they could see in front of them was this cloud. But what's interesting is in Exodus chapter 14, what's really important for the people of God is not so much what they can see, but what they can't see. As much as you and I would think it would be great in some ways to, you know, for God to lead us in such an obvious way, I wonder if after a couple of days, or even for some of us, a couple of hours, we might say, okay, enough is enough. It's, it's time to move. What, what is this cloud doing? When it went in the direction that we didn't think was wise, we might say, God, are you sure? We, we might wonder, did, did we actually have the right cloud? Now, of course, though the cloud could tell them where to go, it, they did not know when they would move or what was coming next. And so God's people were still in the dark about those things. They could not see all that God was doing for them behind the scenes. And so at the beginning of Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, you see Pharaoh leads them. It, sorry, sorry, Pharaoh lets them go. But God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. This is what Moses, the narrator, tells us. But we have no way of knowing that the Israelites were aware of this. There was this big highway called the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. And so typically, if you were going out of Egypt, you would take this Via Maris along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. You could walk to Canaan in about two weeks, but it doesn't take God's people two weeks to get to Canaan. It takes them 40 years. So this pillar of cloud took them not on the most direct route, but on really quite a roundabout way as they wandered in the wilderness. But what we're reminded of is that this is God's mercy. Though the most direct route was via this highway, via this via Maris, God said that if they went that way, they would meet the coastal people. They would meet the Philistines, and they weren't ready for battle. And those people were. 
They would head back, scared, find their way back to Egypt. And so it was God's mercy to take them by this pillar of cloud for this longer path. And you can imagine what was going on for God's people. You know, they're being released after 400 years of captivity. And here they are heading back now via perhaps the Red Sea. Why don't we just go via the highway? You, you can imagine their complaint. And of course, we know what God was doing, but they didn't. One of the things that I think um, is interesting um, in the study of history, and particularly at the moment, is this idea of what's called counterfactuals. People imagine, as I study history, the what-ifs. Uh, people imagine, what if Hitler won the Second World War? People write histories imagining what it would be like. And we do that as well, don't we? We, we do the what-ifs with our lives. What, what if I'd taken that plane? Or what if I'd taken that job? But what we don't often think of is the tens of thousands of things that God is actually protecting us from. That in his mercy he is leading us away from. That we could have been in that car and we could have ended up in that trouble. And so it's right that we give thanks to God, not just for the things that he gives us, but it's also worth pausing and remembering that God is guiding us in every moment and often he is guiding us away from disaster and calamity. And so we should be thankful for that. And often I think we're like God's people. We want to go the shortest way. But God has a different way for us. Well, the Israelites did not, for the Israelites, what they saw before them didn't make sense. The route that they were going on must have seemed crazy. At the start of chapter 14, we're told, that if you want to open up to chapter 14, we're told that they went to Migdol, which means tower, probably a fortified Egyptian city. And then they went uh, the way of Pi-ha-heroth, which means the opening of the canal. And then they went to Baal-zephon, which means Baal of the north. And so here they are on their way out of Egypt when God tells them, what I want you to do is camp between the desert and the sea. Now, you don't have to be a military expert to understand that this is a terrible idea. You have a people who have been oppressed and you're fleeing from these Egyptians. They're the most powerful superpower in the area. They have this massive army. You don't have a massive army. You don't know how to fight. And the last place you go in fleeing from these Egyptians, I think, is between a rock and a hard place. But God says to his people, that's where I want you to go. You have the sea over there and you have the desert over here. God was setting a trap for Pharaoh. But Israel didn't like being the cheese. God had a plan. He says, I'm going to send you there. 
And you're going to look like easy pickings for the Egyptians. Now, Pharaoh heard of this and he perhaps thinks that the Israelites are lost, that they're hemmed in by the wilderness and the sea. They don't know where they're going. And perhaps he says to himself, now is our chance. So there they are, just waiting for Pharaoh to overtake and overpower them. And sure enough, Pharaoh does change his mind. We know from verse 4 and verse 8 that the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord was jealous for his glory. And we've seen that consistently in the book of Exodus, that the Lord is is the God who makes himself known. See there in verse 4, it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The ten plagues have occurred, but God still has one trick up his sleeve. All the people still back in Egypt and there the army is chasing them. And even if this is the last thing that they know, they will know that the Lord is God. See, it was a common idea in the ancient world that out of all the hundreds of gods and goddesses, that these gods and goddesses would just change their mind for no reason. And they could turn, these gods of the ancient world could turn on those who worshipped them in an instant. And so it would make perfect sense to Pharaoh and the Egyptians that oh, perhaps God had shown his power in the plagues, But now they're in the wilderness. He might not have power out in the wilderness. So Pharaoh thinks he's got God's people where he wants them. He sends his army out. He sends the chariots out, the tanks and the stealth bombers of the day. And there they are, looking for God's people. There are God's people with nowhere to go. And many of us know the story. We know what's coming Next, as the Red Sea swallows up those that pursued God's people. And we we relish it. But the Israelites didn't know how things would end. And no doubt they didn't care for being in a situation that put them in impossible odds in these deadly circumstances. All they could see, what was dominant in their minds was the Red Sea over here and the Egyptian army over there. And that pillar that was leading them, not letting them move. So the Israelites did what the Israelites did best in stressful and scary situations. They complained, which is what many of us do when we're stressed or scared. Have a look there in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. 
And Moses said to them, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us up in the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us up out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. God's people respond to what they can see before them. The Egyptians descending and the Red Sea. They basically say to Moses, look, if we're going to die, it would have been better that we die in our own homes. What have you done to us, Moses? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone, that we could serve at least in Egypt? And it's a familiar pattern of complaint. We often follow the same pattern in our lives. We start reinterpreting the past. You know what? You know, it wasn't that bad. Egypt wasn't that terrible. At least we had homes, we had families. We knew what each day would bring. We had work. And some of us find ourselves in times like this where we imagine perhaps our lives before we had become Christian or we imagine our lives if we were Christian. And we often reinterpret the past. We reinterpret the good things that God has done. You know, can you believe God's people? After the ten plagues, there they are being released from Egypt. And there they are complaining to Moses. But don't we do often the same? Sometimes we're tempted to think, God doesn't really care for me. Those people don't really love me. They've never done anything to help me. And so we too often reinterpret the past and we restate our unbelief. You know, God, I'm being obedient. I'm loving people. I'm forgiving. I'm going to church. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. See, Pharaoh misjudged Moses. But Israel misjudged Moses as well. And it's typical for any of us to blame those in authority. Ultimately, the blame is not on Moses, but it's a rebellion against God. Psalm 106 verse 7 says this, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. And sometimes, whether we're new Christians or we've been Christians a long time, we think if God is really with me and if I'm working, walking in his will, then, then I won't have these dangers, these stresses and the potential for disaster before me. And at the first sign of trouble, these freed Israelites are ready to head back to slavery. And of course, doesn't, God doesn't tell us everything that we want to know, but just what we need to know. And so it's not the last time we're going to see God's people complain in this setting. But do we see how God responds here in this chapter? He says, really, 
four important things there in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. He says, Fear not, stand firm, see, and be silent. In the face of this uncertainty, in the face of the oncoming onslaught of the Egyptian army, God says first, fear not, through Moses. And this should have sounded familiar to God's people. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, um, the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. He says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And it is also a moment for us to pause and reflect on just how the New Testament thinks about this. In Ephesians chapter 6, we read this description of the armour of God being put on. And we're not going out to fight hordes of demons in Ephesians chapter 6. The only command that we're given in Ephesians chapter 6 is to stand firm, to extinguish the flaming arrows, to be able to withstand the darts and attacks. Stand firm, Paul says, because the victory has been won. God has accomplished it. Now stand. And I think this is one of the hardest things that we do as Christians. To simply stand and wait. Many of us are impatient. We, we want to be doing something. But there is a time when God says to us, just stand and wait. C.H. Spurgeon says this. He says, I dare say you will think it is a very easy thing to stand still. But it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies. But it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, stand firm. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience and much divine grace. See, the novice soldier who, when the bullets are whirring about, says to his commanding officer, Sir, we, we must retreat, or sir, we must attack. But according to Spurgeon, the veteran stands his ground at ease to wait to fear not, to stand firm, and to see. And no doubt God's people were terrified of this impending Egyptian army. But God says, no, it's a good thing that you see the Egyptians, but it's a better thing that you wait and you trust me. See, we know that trusting God in difficulty is not easy. And we often, out of our anxiety and fear, want to be doing something, but there is a time and there is a place for us to wait, to trust God in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of fear. 
See, it's possible with all that you see that you do not see what God sees. Looking back, we can see in our lives the way God has led us, the way we are able to think in the way God has led us by his hand. We're able to trace his hand. We're able to see his mercy as we look back. But looking forward is much more difficult. Much more difficult. They could see that they had Joseph's bones, that God was faithful in the past. They could see the fiery cloud that he was providing in the present. But in that moment, as the Egyptians came, they could not see what would happen in the future. But when God guides us, he means it in a journey of faith and not off sight. Our world is dominated by what we can see and we're controlled by so much of what we can see. But here, in this situation, God is asking his people to trust what they can't see. Spurgeon also says that we can trace God's hand looking back, but we must trust his heart looking forward. And this is what we need to do as Christian people. The writer of the Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance a race that was set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I think the author of Hebrews must have had the echoes of this story in his mind as he wrote it. Because we don't have a cloud any longer to guide us. Where do we fix our eyes? We fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. They were glued to that cloud. Where would that cloud take them? But we as Christian people, we're glued to the cross. We're to look at him. We're to see him. We're to learn about him. We're to listen to him. We're to read about him. We're to know him. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what we can see. And for the future that we can't see, well, that's where we're called to wait and not to fear and to trust him. Not knowing that the great, that the Red Sea victory was to come, God's people were to trust him. And that's the same for us. We don't know what the next days or weeks or months or years will hold, but we're called to trust him. We're called to trust him because God is leading us. And we're often the ones who are saying, God, what are you doing now? What are you doing in my life? This seems like not the most direct route. This seems like the long way. God had taken his people this far in the book of Exodus. He was not going to leave them. They were not on the shortest route, the most direct route. It was far from the most obvious way, but it was the best way because it was God's way. And so it is in our lives. Really, does God take us on the path that we think is best? Really, does he take us on the shortest route? 
Rarely does he set us out on life's journey that puts on the, us on the most obvious path. And rarely do you look back and say, that's exactly what's you know, happened in our lives. That's exactly how I thought it would have happened. It's not the shortest, most direct, nor most obvious route that God takes us, but it's the best. God sees things that we don't see, and he calls on us to trust him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us, that you would lead us, that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so give us the eyes of faith to see him. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand as you sing.